Hello folks, um, thank you for attending this first fortnight screening of Beautiful Boy, which I think is the Irish premiere, isn't it David? Irish premiere indeed, so um, surprised you can dress up more for it. <laughs> um, I'm joking of course. Um, I'm delighted to have uh, Nick Kelly, Bobby Smith and Jocelyn McGrain uh, with me to discuss the film, discuss um, what the film is telling us about the state of addiction today and mental health. Um, uh, we'll talk for a few minutes, we'll talk for 15 minutes or so, and then we'll come to you in the audience. We've got microphones and all that, so if you can have a question ready to go, that'd be great. I'll start actually by having you introduce yourselves rather than me do a pot of history. So we'll start from the end, uh, Jocelyn, and work our way back. Uh, hi, I'm Jocelyn. Um, I'm, I'm, uh, I volunteer for First Fortnight. So First Fortnight is a charity that organises a mental health, art and culture festival every year. Um, this January it's got a Europe, it's hosting the European Mental Health Arts Festival. Um, I work as a mental health professional as well myself. I work, um, I'm a senior registrar in psychiatry um, so, and I'm currently working with adolescents. Um, I suppose just from the point of view of First Fortnight, uh, First Fortnight's about um, tackling mental health discrimination and stigma and increasing mental health awareness and also um, opening up conversations and using the arts as a cultural space to open up conversations. So in terms of this film, this is a difficult, I suppose, conversation and that's part of um, the reason First Fortnight exists. Um, even from a programming perspective, uh, you know, there's controversy around addiction and its links to mental health and I think this you know, this film certainly doubles down on the addiction, but it's trying to see about the mental illness or the mental health difficulties, what of them in that. And I suppose that's hopefully part of the conversation we're going to have without um, scaring you guys too much. Bobby. Hey, uh, so my name is Bobby Smith. I'm a child and adolescent psychiatrist. Um, I've been working in a number of adolescent addiction services in Dublin for the last 15 years. So it's really about under 18s with the full spectrum of addiction issues from alcohol and cannabis up to uh, heroin um, across a number of different services, mainly outpatient based treatment uh, services but I also am a regular visitor to a residential treatment service down in Kilkenny called Ashling Centre. Nick. Uh, my name is Nick Kelly, I'm a writer and director. Um, I made a film which last year this time was kind of programmed by First Fortnight called The Drummer and the Keeper, uh, which is a um, story of a friendship between uh, a wild and crazy rock drummer who, uh, who's got bipolar disorder and a 17-year-old goalkeeper who he meets during his treatment who's got uh, autism. Um, and I guess the other thing I'd say is I'm also a parent and a lot of my responses to the film uh, are a bit informed by that. So I mean, I've just seen it for the first time myself. So. Um, uh, I don't know if that, any of that will be helpful to, to the discussion, but uh, I certainly noticed that. And you're of course also a musician. You should have clarified that you are one of the yeah. find, finding fathers of the fat lady sings. Almost grand, finding grandfather almost. <laughs> uh, yeah, and, and you know, it's interesting actually, the, the, the thing I'll say about rock and roll is that in, in particular that's a space where you know, I, I, I think of my, my kids, but I also think of lots of people I know who've had addiction issues, and, and I've, I've certainly been around a bit of that world, I guess. Mm -hmm. The music in this film actually was, um, I thought, interesting, in that I, I felt sitting through it that it was sort of like um, 
a driving mixtape for someone of our generation. It was kind of your dad's mixtape, wasn't it? You got uh, uh, Tim Buckley, and you got Mogwai, and you got all these people. The people like us still play to convince ourselves we're still with it. Well, we are still with it. Yes, we are. <laughs> no, confirm or something. I mean, I think it's very. You know, it's very interesting. I've literally just, I mean, I'm sort of still taking in things about the film, to be honest. I've just seen it for the first time, like all of you. I mean, I think it's fascinating to me because, you know, clearly the protagonist of the film is Steve Carell, actually. He's the person who's trying to do something. And he's, and I think that's very interesting, the point about the soundtrack, because actually it's very much from his perspective, I think, and trying to make sense of this thing. And I think it's also really interesting because a lot of the music, and even setting it in San Francisco, I don't know if the real story is set in San Francisco, which is the absolute heartland of counterculture and, I guess, you know, probably the summer of love, and, I guess, all of the druggy stuff that comes with that. So I, that's, it, I guess the music choices are kind of an interesting... Put it this way, it's, I think it's very interesting that they put his soundtrack on rather than... The Timothy Chalamet. Yeah, character. that's right. That, that, that's, that's kind of what I mean. We are, um, well, I am the same age as Steve Carell, <laughs> so that, that makes sense. Um, just talk a bit about, I actually know that because I'm lucky enough to talk to Steve Carell and Timothy Chalamet a few weeks ago about, about the film. And they were interesting about a lot of things. I was interested in, they were talking, for example, about the different generations and how drugs have affected those two generations, people who are with Carell's age in their mid 50s. and someone of uh, Chalamet's age. And one thing that Chalamet said which was interesting was that he felt that the drugs that were being used at that stage, um, or a bit further ago actually than, than Carell's generation, the 60s, LSD, marijuana, those sort of things, helped people or were used in such a way that people connected with their surroundings. And he felt that drugs like, I know if you've talked about this well, Bobby, if this, if this makes sense to you, that he felt that the opiates and crystal meth weren't doing that, there were drugs that were shutting people out from reality. Does that make kind of sense to you about the difference between the two generations and the different drug issues? Um, yeah, I, I suppose um, I'm look, I've read the memoirs as well, which kind of fl- flesh out the story from Nick's point of view. And I suppose, like Nick Kelly was saying there about um, art and being in conversation, I think, yeah, there is a generational thing. And then if you look at Nick and him like in Nirvana, and I'm probably I'm around the same age as um, Nick from the film, so you know that grunge era, and I suppose the, it, there does it, from looking at the memoir and even watching the film, you're trying to figure out a little bit why does Nick end up, you know, in such a cycle of addiction, and you get that through reading the memoirs as well, and it does seem as if it's partly in conversation with. Um, his cultural background with his music and the music that he, you know, goes towards his Nirvana, alienation, as if he's in conversation trying to be this new, um, I suppose, creating this identity because he's alienated. So, and during the memoir, Nick's given a couple of uh, mental health diagnoses, he's given a diagnosis of depression at some stage, he's given a diagnosis of bipolar and manic depression, but the, oh, it doesn't stay too long on those things it keeps on the addiction pathway you're, you're just trying to figure out is it that kind of difference in the generations thing because David or Steve Carell does his drugs during college and then stops regrets it but 
and he worries about the effect of his generation doing that that makes it okay for kind of Nick to do it. and obviously then there's that scene where they share a joint mm-hmm. and um, David then later chastises himself for that as well. Well, Bobby, what do you think about the difference between the two generations and how drug use and drug abuse, if you want to phrase it, has changed over the last 20, 30 years? I, I suppose I'm much more familiar with the situation here in Ireland mm. than in the States. Um, and I, I guess the, the, the major drug problems that they've had in the States that, that haven't really hit Ireland would have been, say, crack cocaine sure. maybe 15, 20 years ago. And then more recently, the, the issue of crystal meth. Um, whereas in Ireland, um, I suppose our issues emerged maybe in the in the seventies with heroin, mm-hmm. which bobbled along for a while, largely confined to Dublin, then really uh, exploded. I suppose in the mid nineteen nineties. Mm. Um, but as 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 a substance has very much faded into the background in the age range I work with, heroin is an extremely bad name. Um, young people I meet who would use any drug that, that's that's put in front of them, even if they don't know what it is, um, but if they're told it's heroin, they will um, steer away from it. So our heroin sort of focus service, we basically have to shut down because there was no ongoing demand for it. Um, is that good news? I mean, are, are they moving on towards things that are just well, as damaging? Well, there's always going to be, you know, as long as human beings and drugs, there's going to be drug use. Yeah. Um, I think certainly the disappearance of the heroin problem in the adolescent age range is certainly good news. It's maybe it's one example of a HSE service showing yeah. down where, where, where it's positive. Um, the, the drug that's actually causing all the problems at the moment for us is cannabis. Uh, in our age range, it's probably the main drug driving referrals in 80% of cases, and, and that's not a new drug. Mm-hmm. But I suppose even saying it's not a new drug comes with caveats because it's it's a very, very different creature than it was even 10, 15 years ago when it was sort of hash in the mm-hmm. 1980s and 90s, which was pretty mild in comparison to the you know the hydro, hydroponically grown um, high potency uh, modern weed that's completely displaced it and is destroying young lives in a way I wouldn't have imagined possible even when I started in this job 15 years ago. That's, that's interesting because that's, that's in some ways an unfashionable view. You know, in liberal Ireland, liberal America, liberal United Kingdom, we're all fine with cannabis. So I mean, have you found any pushback from the community I'm talking about there from you know, liberal Ireland to say, oh no, we, you know, we're we're on, we're on side with cannabis, that's the one we like. Um, to be honest with you, I found it a bit confusing. I feel like I'm living in a parallel universe because the cannabis I see is causing absolute devastation to the lives of the young people I meet. Um, and this was the other thing I took from the movie, and hopefully we all did, is that you know that drug use, or someone certainly descends into a pattern of drug use that is an addiction. It's not just their life that's damaged and, and negatively mm-hmm. impacted by that. Because we meet families who are just distraught um, at, at what, what's happening to their son. It usually is a son for cannabis. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's very interesting. So let's talk about, as we're talking about this via film, about the use and power of entertainment in talking about these questions. Nick, obviously, you've addressed this in yourself. What do you think is, what can entertainment bring to these conversations, film? books, television, whatever? I think, first of all, it keeps you in the room for long enough to think about them. <laughs> I mean, I thought it was a real, I mean, it is a really interesting experience watching that film because it is, it's, for me, slightly 
from a structural point of view, it's a bit of a strange film because it doesn't really arc so much as spiral. And I find it really interesting that, again, because I think Steve Carell is, is the way it's edited, it feels like a trip, actually. And it feels like Steve Carell's bad trip. It keeps flashbacking and then we're suddenly in a different place and all those time shifts. And I think it's really fascinating because I do sort of, the one thing I was sitting as I was thinking there is they're making the point that if you're the parent or the child or the brother or the friend of an addict, you're, you're in lockstep with their stuff and you're going through the same uh, spirally stuff. And, and, it, and it, it's an interesting film from this point of view that it isn't giving you from a dramatic point of view, that release that you're expecting, a sort of a high in the middle, and then, uh, uh, you know, it goes back, and then you get a happy ending. It's just keeping hammering away and away. And, but that feels, to me, possibly quite realistically, sure. like what it feels like to be the parent of somebody. And I can say as a parent, the one thing, if any of you aren't parents, is that it's the most fantastic thing to do, but you are never not scared another day in your life. And, you know, and I watched that film, and that's all I can think of is, like, God, that's... I just know, because you don't ever stop loving. And you just... You do keep going back and trying again and again. And But instead of trying to get them to get put their socks in the laundry or, you know, not you turn the toaster upside down to get the toast out, it's, like, going to try and get them to not... You know, so, I mean, that, that was the thing I really thought was interesting, is that I do think... It, it, it made me feel like something that I hope to God that I won't mm-hmm. ever experience, which is that thing of the repetitive thing and the repetitive thing. And, and you, like, it's all more like a TV show than a film. Like, usually what happens is you try things, you try things, you try the wrong things in film terms, and then finally you get a bit of knowledge and you try the right thing. And almost the only knowledge you get in the film is stop trying. <laughs> it's, well, that, that's interesting. I wonder what you guys have thought about that, that last point that Nick made about what happens in the film. It, it's this, I think one of the most difficult things to watch in the film is the point at which Steve Carell has to say, we can't do anymore. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not giving you money, and I'm, I'm stepping back, and he's not giving up, but he's facing up to the reality that nothing, he can't really contribute anymore to that. What did you think about that, Jocelyn? Does that feel real? Does that feel like a, a dilemma that, that parents go through every day? That's, I think that was my bit of the film where you kind of sigh a breather, a breath of relief because you're like, Steve Carell now will keep his family going and is you know and has finally stopped being pulled into this cycle with Nick. Yet at the same time, will still come to Nick's age, but is clear and boundary about what he does with it. Um, and yeah, I think that's I suppose an experience that I've had of parents. It's often the support that you offer them, and yeah, in the the, that's the struggle he has in the book as well, in the memoir. It's, it's about him looking at his difficulties in terms of Nick. And once he starts looking at his own difficulties, then he's better able mm-hmm. to deal with the kind of constant relapse and um, recovery of it. Um, I suppose the other thing I suppose that goes with that, and I guess I'm, I'm probably looking at it from Nick's point of view, I guess, because maybe of who I am, you're trying to figure out, um, again, what his vulnerabilities are and and how they can, I suppose, be manipulated because you can kind of see that Nick was quite manipulative at times in it and Timothy Chalamet, I think, does an excellent performance of mm-hmm. that. Um, I, and I suppose I'd be probably 
uh, in my experience of work, I, I sometimes am looking at stigma. Does stigma get in the way of looking at the vulnerabilities and the mental health difficulties that lead to the addiction, or then this chicken before the egg thing? I'm sure you probably could say more about that, Bobby, and because um, I wonder if if um, we could get to the, I suppose, and something that you come across with service users is that they come to you and, they, and I try and say to them, we have to deal with the drug issue first rather than um, looking at the mental health thing and they say, no, we need that first. I don't know if you want to speak more yeah, about that. that. Speak, speak to that. Um, maybe before I do, just touch on the point you both made in terms of who maybe we connect with in the movie and perhaps it's a generational issue. I'm a dad as well and I guess I found myself maybe more um, connecting with, I suppose, the dad, you know, um, and it's something about being a parent because it just brings up for you all your fears. Um, but on the issue of, I suppose, that we call it comorbidity, where, where there's a substance use problem and um, a mental health issue, and the, the two frequently coexist. It's part of the reason why I'm a child psychiatrist and, and I work in, in the addiction service and with lots of mental health professionals because uh, mental health issues are, are way more common in people with addiction issues. And I guess rather than getting too caught up in the chicken and the egg of which is causing which and which came first and which do we treat first, I guess we, we do try and manage both simultaneously. Um, and I guess historically there's been a bit of a problem in uh, services, but in the States, in Ireland and, and everywhere where there's been that separation of services and the addiction service will sort of say, oh, you're too mad for us, go get your mental health sorted out. Right. The mental health service will sort of say, oh, it's, it's, your, it's your drinking or your drug use, go get that sorted out. And the unfortunate, the unfortunate uh, patient or person is left uh, in between the two. I'm interested to hear how you phrase that because it would strike me that addiction is a mental health issue. I mean, you see, you, you, you talk about this like we have two things, we have a mental health issue and an addiction issue. I would have thought in the modern way of thinking about these things, addiction is by definition a mental health issue. Um, I guess that is certainly the way I see it, uh, to be honest with you. Um, I mean, the World Health Organization has an international classification of diseases which psychiatrists use to you know, assign diagnosis. And all of the addiction disorders are there bang in the middle of, of, of that, those diagnostic mm. categories. But oddly enough, it's actually a lot of psychiatrists and mental health professionals who have sort of decided you know, that that's not really our thing or we don't do that. Mm. Um, so it's really my colleagues in mental health oftentimes I'm trying to persuade to get more involved in working with people with addiction issues because while it's challenging to treat, as the movie clearly you know, shows, and outcomes are frustratingly uh, modest, uh, you know, um, but so they are for lots of mental disorders that we do choose to work with. Mm. Um, I'll come to the audience to ask one more question so you can ready yourself um, uh, with you in two minutes. Prepare yourself. Just talk to me about, as I raised earlier, about depictions of addiction on screen and in popular culture. What do they get right and what do they get wrong, do you think? Yeah, I, I suppose, yeah, that's a good question and it's something where we try first fortnight to, I suppose, select things that you know, capture the ambivalence and capture both sides of uh, the argument. Yeah, I suppose historically, you know, there's, there's certain films that can glorify mental illness. And I think based on this film, you could see Nick maybe wanting, you know, especially through the, his literary heroes, he, he kind of wants to be this alienated figure. He wants to be this, 
you know, F. Scott Fitzgerald, Kowski, yeah, all those guys, all those yeah. guys yeah. yeah. And that's always the worry with mental illness that, you know, if you glorify it in media, that, you know, someone might want to take that identity, especially when they're an adolescent, where they're still forming their identity as such. And then if you throw in drugs into the mix, that kind of further upends their coping skills at that age as well. So it, it's, I think films are getting better um, at showing, I suppose, the true nature of mental illness. And it, it's, that's why it's good to have panel discussions like this to kind of give a context for it. And I do think the film in that regard shows addiction in a good way. And it's ironic it's gotten kind of maybe some critical problem. Uh, it's been criticised for, you know, uh, being a little uh, unstructured as a film, but I think that's what makes it actually more truthful. Um, I don't know, uh, that's, you're probably more aware of the critical reviews <laughs> of the film than me. Well, it's, it's, it's done okay, but yeah. I think, yeah, they're probably hoping for more of an awards surge for it, which uh, hasn't quite happened yet. Um, uh, so we have a question from the audience. I'd like to raise their hands. We've got roving microphones. Yes, there's a lady right there. Uh, there's, there's a mic in the way, you just, you just wait 10 seconds and with you. Great, thank you. I was wondering um, about the panel things about, is that okay, can you hear me? Yes, yeah. yes, it's fine. Um, that a number of the relapses took place, it appears, just after visits home, and uh, to his, you know, to his father and um, stepmother, and was there a suggest suggestion that the dynamic of the family had somehow, you know, pushed him in the direction or was it that the, going back to the old familiar territory triggered him? I don't know if anyone else noticed that. Uh, guys, everyone wants to go with that? Um, maybe another way of thinking about that or looking at that is that his only periods of sobriety was while he was at home. So, you know, you, you relapse from a position of sobriety, so um, he was only, if he was going to relapse, it was obviously going to be from home. He didn't seem to have any period of sobriety anywhere else other than with one of his two parents. Um, I think one of the, just one of the issues that that seemed to touch upon in the movie, and again, as a dad, you're thinking about it, is the whole theme of love and being loved and feeling loved, um, which certainly, you know, his dad was constantly going to say to him he loved him, and I think he felt loved, but the downside of loving and being loved is that it sometimes comes with guilt when when there's disappointment in terms of, of the, the relationship and the guilt then often became uh, and you see this again and again you know in, in real life issues with addiction that guilt or almost any negative emotional state can become a reason or a, or a precipitant for someone to, to move back into uh, a cycle of use once again. I mean, I think that to, just to add to that, I mean, I think it's interesting as a film, the thing that makes it, I think, quite a difficult film to watch from a dramatic point of view is that it doesn't give you the good guy and the bad guy. You've got two totally brilliant actors, both of whom, when you're watching them, you're really feeling for. And because the, I think the causative piece of like, I didn't get that Steve Carell stuff he was doing was really triggering uh, Nick. I, I, I didn't get that from it and I felt that that was very truthful to the I've, you know I, th I thought they were really really trying to hold to this thing of the, it doesn't matter how much that you love somebody it, it you know sometimes things you just can't fix things and I mean that from both points of view I mean I don't think Timothy Chalamet ever doubted his father's love but actually the, you know wasn't it just wasn't fixing him 
And that's from a film point of view. As a, as a, as a storyteller, you're thinking... Okay, I want somebody to give me, throw me, throw me a bone here, and somebody. Love is supposed to be yeah, a some, bone, I, I want yeah. somebody to be a bad guy, and I want somebody to be a good guy, and I, and and I actually think this is kind of um, an amazing film from that point of view. That actually, I think, as a as a dis, as a discussion starter, as a painting of what a relationship like that might be like, I found that a very very believable painting. I I, I don't think it's. I don't think it's set there necessarily to give us, make us all go out punching the air and feeling full of hope and joy. I do walk out thinking I understand both of those people, uh, and I and I and that's a really interesting, an unusual thing for a, just as a piece of storytelling, if that's the right word. I just thought that was really so. I, I don't know if that answers your question, but I think they very deliberately were we're trying not to give us an easy this, because this, therefore this. Uh, another question from the audience. Um, let's go, Lady in the Green right at the back. Um, I think it's Lady in the It's me eyes, not you. <laughs> um, I just kind of have a question about kind of the rhetoric around kind of addiction and stuff at the moment, like um, this idea of kind of experimentation that spirals into addiction then, um, I always thought that the conversation, especially in this country, was very much a drugs that are bad, don't do drugs, and even in the movie like Steve Crow, at one point he's like, oh, um, I was worried about you doing too much pot, but you're doing all these other things, like do you think that drug education in this country needs and the conversation needs to change into something that's more along the lines of how to recognise these negative patterns. And we'd prefer you not to do drugs, but if you are going to do them, here's when it starts to look bad. Uh, do you think the conversation needs to change into something more like that? Is it already changing? Like what? It's a good question, but yeah, but it was, it's an interesting. I was thinking about this actually. About I think things have probably got better from when. I was a child, I remember like in the, in the 70s that you had this sort of drug education where nobody would admit the fact in part of the education that drugs made people feel good. And you had this sort of mystery as a child, like why are we doing this? And nobody would own up to that. It's sort of part of what the, the questioner is getting at. What do you think to that? I mean, how is the state of education and what needs to change? Um, I, I guess, you know, what the education we have in our secondary schools is the SPHE program and it does touch on substance use. Many people would like it to maybe touch on it a little bit more, but the challenge is you've got you know 30 kids in a classroom um, at the age of 13 or 14, most of whom are sort of saying to them, I'll never do drugs. So it's hard to pitch a message at them. Mm -hmm. You start giving harm reduction advice in that setting and they're going, it goes over their heads. So I guess you've got to pitch the message that's appropriate for the average person in the room that you're communicating to. Um, in terms of our society and the message it's giving in terms of drug use, again, coming back to my point about cannabis, I actually think if you listen to the narrative within our society at the moment, it's cannabis is cool, cannabis is grand. In fact, it's not just, it's not that it's, it's not harmful, it's actually a medicine. Mm. And that's the narrative of the moment and most young people and families who come into our service are completely bewildered by it. Um, the, the, the problems it, it brings into their homes. And, and yes, I realise that most 
people who use cannabis, it doesn't actually cause major devastation for them, but there is that minority, maybe 20% or so, for whom it causes uh, very significant problems. So I don't think that there's a, a really stark, dark message out there, sort of saying drugs are dreadful. Mm. You know, um, the message is almost the opposite, actually, right now. Mm. That's, that's a fair point. Um, the question from the audience. Um, I see if you, um, yes, the red there, red t-shirt. Hi, um, so just from a personal point of view, I found the film to be quite hopeless and I feel like that's the predominant feeling that I'm taking away from it, is a bit of hopelessness. Um, so I would question, I suppose my question for you is, what is the benefit of a film like this and who specifically is it for? Uh, Jordan, I might take that back. I suppose, yeah. Um, oh, okay, yeah, I suppose. The <laughs> um, okay, I'm going to show off again that I read the memoirs, okay? And um, the, I suppose the, the good, I suppose the, the message from the memoirs is more hopeful by the end. And it doesn't really say in the film as much is that he, the times that the, um, David or Steve Carell gets Nick into uh, rehab for as long as that is, yeah, and even though he relapses, the it's more about that the rehab is part of the process and it keeps him off the drug, the drugs for a certain amount of time until the time that he gets off it for a longer period of time and to kind of not look at, I suppose, addiction and these difficulties in, in a black and white way. And uh, Nick is now, as the film says at the end, eight years sober um, and I suppose his last relapse was actually on prescription drugs rather than crystal meth. Um, so I suppose that is the... I suppose the hope in the film and is to kind of look at addiction in more truth in a kind of more truthful way. And that's the reason I suppose we're programming it is we're trying to give uh, the truth of it. And going back to your question earlier on, maybe entertainment in the past has given the, you know, the I suppose the addiction drama and the cure at the end. And that maybe has not served us well. So to try and look at things and open up conversations about this in a, a different way. But I I suppose I would recommend reading the memoirs because it does give a more hopeful um, end to it as well. Uh, we'll have to close it there, I'm afraid, because there's a film coming in. We could go on for a lot longer, but um, uh, there's a sold-out film coming in, I'm told. Uh, to, or one more, David? Yeah, sorry. I've been told by the, by the, by the, by the, by the headmaster that we're allowed one more question. Um, yes, there's a in the black just there in the end. Yes. Several of the panel referred to the fact that as parents they looked on it in a particular way, um, not just as a sort of a theoretical thing, but visualising themselves possibly in the same situation. Um, we have in the extended family experience of somebody who was a heroin addict, and I remember speaking to someone at the time, trying to find out as much as we could in order to help his parents, and the counsellor we spoke to said, being realistic about it, if an addict said that the sun was shining, I would go out and check. The other thing that they said was, I have never known a 40-year-old heroin addict. Now, as it happens, that guy was one of the very tiny minority who was a lucky one. He's almost 50 now and he's clean. But the, the significance of the family, of the effect on the family of an addict is very well done in that, I thought. Even the thing of stealing his little brother's $8. That's the sort of thing. Nothing is safe in the house. 
nobody can leave anything out of their hands. Um, the parents got enormous support from what came up at the very end of that film, which is the sort of family support group. And the poster at the back of the, the hall struck me where it said, the, the three C's. I didn't cause it, I can't control it, and I can't remember the other one. <laughs> I can't cure it. Um, I think there probably needs to be more general awareness of help that is available for parents because it's only through the, f the family getting the help that I think there's any hope of helping the addict. And tough love is very much part of that, that help. Is there help available, Bobby, to the extent it should be? Um, I suppose our service, because we work with adolescents, family are absolutely central to the treatment and all the evidence indicates that where families involved, um, outcomes are certainly better. Um, in terms of support for families, I think the group they were, they were depicting there at the end would have been a NARA non-group and there are NARA non-groups I know in Ireland. There could probably be more and Dublin is probably well served but elsewhere there could be more. Um, um, so. I think you're right, certainly, that the, the, the family are key. Um, and most services, I think even services that, that, that work with, with older adults will have a significant uh, family participation in it or will encourage that, again, partly because of that fact that the outcomes are just better where, where people remain connected with family. Thank you for that. Thank you to the panel. Uh, give our panel a round of applause. Thank you. Thank you.